Welcome back to the Duke and Duchess podcast. Welcome to episode 80. I'm Liz. I'm Chad. And today we will be covering chapters 13 through 21 of The Words of Radiance by Brandon Sanderson. Sanderson. All those chapters. (laughs) On our next book club, we will be covering chapters 20 through through 27. Odd numbers. I don't like them. Why don't you lay our spoiler policy out there? Our spoiler policy is that Liz has read all of these books. All the books, in fact, in the Sanderson archives. I have read none of them. Therefore, we will not be spoiling anything past chapter 21 of Words of Radiance. You're sounding really peppy tonight, Chad. What's up with that? I'm a mess. I spent two hours last night arguing with strangers on the internet about Tori Amos. <laughs> and I it was s- worth it. I sneezed and threw my entire neckle region out. I'm hopped up on all kinds of ibuprofen right now. I got two different brands of ibuprofen coursing through my bloodstream. And you know what that does to me. It's the blue dye. My body can't process blue dye. You are a mess. I'm a mess. But you're a cute mess. Thank you. I appreciate that. So we'll keep you around. Well, you know, I mean, somebody's got to feed me. So we had a nice long section to read. Because we we had two weeks between book clubs. We did. Absolutely. So what, what did you think of this week's chapters, though? So for the amount that we read, I have relatively few notes. So like I have about the same amount of notes that I would normally take on a shorter section. Even though we had a number of chapters, they were all relatively short chapters, and it's really kind of one arc, like one set of things that happens, mostly in Shallan's storyline. And then we get to dick around with Adolin and Kaladin and watch them catfight. Watch them bro out. They do kind of bro out a little bit. They're like the poster children for bro culture. They kind of are. I really like the snapters from this section. and They're I, very snappy. I, I definitely want to talk about them. So the little snippets before the chapters or snapters, as we call them, are all quotes from a listener song, which we learned in our in the last the series of interludes. The listeners are what the Parshendi call themselves. Yeah. They have a series of songs that were passed down to help them remember the different forms that their people can take. Because when they fled to the Shattered Plains from their gods, who apparently were some sort of body-snatching slavers. Wow, when you say this all in one like chunk, it sounds really wacky. <laughs> yeah. Maybe that says something. Uh, I don't know what you're talking about. Anyway, we start to get some quotes from the listener's song describing their different forms. So I just think that's really interesting. And we'll talk about a little bit um, of each of those as we talk about the chapters. Yeah, I noticed one of them was from stanza 90 of one of the songs. And I'm like, damn, that's like half as long as a Bob Dylan tune. Right. (laughs) 
So chapter 13 is called The Day's Masterpiece. Shalan is traveling back to the Shattered Plains with Tvalakov, the slaver, and his men, Bluth and Tag. Her situation is more than precarious. She's gravely injured, and she's lost her mentor and patron. Additionally, the men she's traveling with might decide to enslave her at any time. She's also the only one who knows about the imminent return of the Voidbringers, so she's determined to finish Yasna's work and make her way to the Shattered Plains. The Snapter in this one describes war form and says that this form comes to those who have the will. But the will's on a whole different series. He's eating cereal on a spaceship with a cat. Oh, my head is spinning. I'm glad that you rightly called the character Bluth. In all of my notes, I call him George Michael. Right. <laughs> well, it's not bluff. It has to be Bluth. bluff. It is bluff. Of course. We're not assholes. We're, we're, I mean, we are, but... <laughs> no one of us is. <laughs> I noticed in this chapter, Brandor takes great effort to get Shallan to notice all of the different vegetation and shrubbery. Like, she's going on and on about, but they couldn't survive a high storm. I mm-hmm. don't understand. Like, she's really going on about it. And then throughout the entire section... She's a botanist in her spare time. Mm-hmm. Like She's on and on and on about the vegetation. Well, we'll talk about that in a few chapters. We might. We might. I have a theory about it, too. But, yeah, Shalon distracts herself. That's how she distracts herself from upsetting or distressing thoughts. And she's got a lot of things to be distressed about right now. She's lost all of her worldly possessions and Yasna. She's barefoot. Her feet are all jacked up she's in the hands of these slavers who when she when she asked to ride in the wagon so that she can get some privacy take an extra long time handing her that key yeah yeah she's she's really not in a good position right now so you can tell what she does is uh she copes by shrubbery copes via shrubbery which you know it could be crack i'm just saying I mean, that's a little anachronistic, Shrubs, not but drugs. I, appreciate, I appreciate where you're going with it. Look, it grows up out of the ground, man. How could it be bad? <laughs> so we start off this chapter with Shalon riding in the la- in the wagon with Bluth. He's not a fan. No. Of her. And at what she's trying to kind of make chit-chat with him. And at one point he says... You think I'm as dumb as that stick. And she almost says, stop insulting my stick. Yeah. But she doesn't. So gross. Stick reference. We all know the stick is more than just a stick, right? Of course it is. And this is this is where it begins. <laughs> you will say nothing bad about the stick. But I kind of like what she says back to him that she she tells him, you know what? Stupidity is actually a function of one's surroundings. So when, when it comes to like building a fire or doing anything useful, I'm stupid. <laughs> when it comes to knowing long words, you're stupid. So it reminds me of the parable of the ignorant edema. Yes. Although not as well written. Okay. True. To be fair. Brandon Sanderson is also not trying to make a huge point about it. Exactly. So Shalon then asks Tvlakov to put her in one of the slave cages and close the door. 
But she does this because she wants some privacy to be able to go through Yasna's trunk and um, try to kind of get her bearings as to what she's going to do next. And she, in pattern, have a conversation about the situation. And she realizes that pattern came to the physical realm because of the void bringers, that he's aware, was aware of this situation before he came. And that's an interesting tidbit. It also, is, yes. we find out that he was sent in contrast to Syl, who came and bonded with Kaladin against the wishes of the other honor spren. So that's interesting. It is. Also, what I thought was the most revealing part of the chapter to me was when Pattern calls the Voidbringers the spren of him. Mm-hmm. Later, we get something that happens with Syl that I think draws a sharp contrast, and I'll expand on that a little bit later. Okay. But also, I liked in this conversation that Shalon, she starts asking about when he showed up and back when she was a child, and uh, he says to Shalon that she didn't break, only cracked. Also, he says, it's the lies that save her, and those were the lies that brought pattern. It's interesting looking at that in the context of what we've seen of Shalon's childhood and what we've seen of her, this dissociative traumatic amnesia that she has, these spells that she goes into whenever her memories even approach certain traumatic events, her brain just freezes, she stops thinking, and she completely even loses time. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people like to try and um, diagnose Shalon. She's a very interesting character. Later in the book, that develops more. But I, I think this is one of the more interesting things about her, just looking at her response to trauma. It's comparable to what Kvoth goes through in Name of the Wind, another book that we've covered. It's interesting for me to look at the different ways the two authors explore this, this same sort of phenomenon, Patrick Rothfuss, you know, with his prose, he just makes you feel what Kvothe has gone through versus I feel like Brandon Sanderson lays it out there in a little more of an analytical way. Yeah, I think the perspective the and the way that Brandon Sanderson chooses to write, it's just not as intimate. That's a good word for it. Despite the fact that he's still inside of people's heads but just not as much or not as deeply. So it's not as though it's like, you know, it's not as though it's from a different point of view. It's technically from the same point of view, but it feels very different and a little bit more of a camera, you know, and you're just kind of getting like the surface level thoughts of what these characters are thinking. That's a good way of putting it. And I mean, Patrick Rothfuss just has a magical way of of putting things, you know, um, whereas uh, most authors, I think, would would describe a character's feelings. And, uh, you know, he had sadness like a cloud that descends upon him, blah, 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 you know, every now and then or whatever. Whereas Patrick Rothfuss might say, I understand you have a stone for your heart. You know, that's something that Ori says to Kvothe at one point, and that just makes I, makes you feel what he's feeling yeah. in a way that 
describing how someone's feeling. It's just not the same way. It's not. And and that's why Patrick Rothfuss can write a book that's 800 pages and nothing happens and it's still amazing. <laughs> right. But I like Sanderson's writing too. I mean, and, and for a lot of people out there, it's either or. But Sanderson's writing and the way he describes characters and breaks them down, for me, like engages my mind more than my feelings maybe but mm-hmm. i still feel like i want to sit down and figure them out and pick them apart which is why i like sat down with the dsm5 after you reading this chapter what? what it's so unlike me i'm so shocked by this <laughs> the dsm4 should be one of the books or the dsm5 should be one of the books that we've covered <laughs> in episode 81 we'll cover we'll cover 400 through 420 of the DSM-5. I mean, I can tell you all about the body's response to extreme levels of adrenaline and cortisol. Well, let's hear it. No, I really, I'm not going to do that. (laughs) Just promise me you'll put it on the website. Oh, yeah, right. (laughs) I mean, I'll say that I'm going to do that. I have several sources. (laughs) But actually, it's very interesting because... When someone has, well, just made me think about like, what does that happen when someone has an extreme response or a traumatic event like that? It actually like the body reacts sometimes by short circuiting, like just cutting off the memory circuits because otherwise, like, you know, your body's like, whoa, there's too much cortisol. We're going to have a heart attack or something. And um, it just like circumvents that entire process so that that's, you know, in a very simplistic way, part of what's going on when someone has that traumatic amnesia. Mm -hmm. I think it's very interesting. It is interesting. Ready for chapter 14? Chapter 14. It's called Iron Stance. Can you diagnose Adolin Colon? Because I think he's a real shit bringer. Don't you dare. Don't you dare. Adolin Colon is the kind of guy who, when he goes to make a creme deposit... When he goes to sit down to take a shit, he's like, Navani, bring me my shit and shoes. (laughs) I can't sit here and look at my hairy knuckles. I I love Adolin. He's one of my favorite characters in the book. I think I just sprained the other side of my neck from rolling (laughs) my eyes so hard. You haven't read enough. Just keep, oh my god! Ju- just, just I'm just asking you to reserve judgment. He's like a 15 year old boy in a 24 year old man's body inside of a 2400 pound book. <laughs> <laughs> just asking you to reserve judgment. Yeah, we'll see. All right, so chapter 14 is called Iron Stance. We open with a snapter describing mate form. It tells us that to get this form, it requires true empathy. You're smirking. Go ahead. Let it out. No, no. I got, I got nothing to say. Right. <laughs> I got nothing to say, nothing to do, nobody to do, just like Adolin Colin. He keeps putting on shows like this. Nobody's going to want to be near. He ain't going to mate form with anybody. <laughs> how appropriate that mate form is the how you start this chapter. Where he's like, I will bludgeon you with my penis until you die. That's the extent of this chapter. It's six foot long. 
Are you ready for the summary? I'm, yes, please give me the summary. All right. Stop, will it stop me? It. I'm hoping. <laughs> okay. Adolin is talking to his shard blade before a duel. It's adorable, and anyone who disagrees can go to hell. <laughs> he is dueling Salinor, one of Thanadol's shard bearers. This is the beginning of Dalinar's plan to disarm the High Princes by winning their shards in duels. He begins to fall into wind stance, a flowing, elegant fighting style. But as the duel begins, he decides that it isn't time for a show, it's time for a beating. He hammers Salinor, winning the duel in moments without any attempt at artistry. The crowd is outraged at his unconventional tactics, but he ends the day winning the duel and the shard blade. So I poked fun at this chapter, and mm-hmm. I do think Aelin Colon is a very frustrating character for me. Mm-hmm. Is it because but, you have been a 15-year-old boy in a 24-year-old man's body <laughs> at some point? <laughs> well played, Duchess. Well played. It might be. <laughs> but but the reality is, I actually I actually did enjoy this chapter. I I really only have one note for this chapter, and it's, did I break any rules? Did I break any rules? Did I? Which, by the way, is seven words. Oh, snap. I like it. That's it. I mean, that really is the sum- the whole summary of the chapter. I-, I love the way he sort of picked the moment, you know, where he was like, what's going to make What's going to make the statement? Although, I mean, not everybody's going to see the statement for, mm-hmm. what, for what it is. But, you know, what is going to make the statement that I want to make that I don't even I'm not even going to waste time mm-hmm. to measure you up. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to waste time to dance around you. I'm going to walk in and paddle you like a child. Mm-hmm. And that's what he does. He yeah. just completely obliterates this guy. And also... It sort of pokes fun once again at all the sort of bullshit cultural norms mm-hmm. that, you know, the, I keep wanting to say Lathani, but that's not right. Um, Alethi. The Alethi. It's all the same letters just mm-hmm. mixed around. Uh, that the Alethi have, you know, about, oh, look how fancy we are. Look how fancy we are. But really, any any dude with a shard blade and... And uh, enough big dick energy is going to go in there and cave your skull in. Big dick energy. So, so uh, you know, I also thought the dynamic between the brothers yeah. was uh, was pretty good. So it was an enjoyable chapter, but I just didn't have necessarily have a whole lot to say about it. What I really like, too, is looking at where Adolin has come as a character from the beginning of Way of Kings, where he wasn't getting his father's vision. He really uh, wasn't behind, he wasn't fighting for a righteous cause. And as he's talking to his weapon, and I I love his respect for his weapon, you know, uh, he talks about how he never named it, even though a lot of Alethi named their swords. Uh, I mean, come on, the... The penis metaphor is very strong in this chapter. It's strong. I'm not going to lie. But um, I shall hold it proudly like many, like generations of men before me have. You just have to keep reading. 
But when you look at where Adolin was in the beginning of the series to where he is now, fighting for a unified Alethkar, because that's what he really believes is the right thing to do, it's touching. And yes, I like the interchange between him and Renarin where they're discussing his lucky rituals that he does before his duel. Did you eat chicken today? You know, do you have this? Do you have that? And uh, that's kind of fun. Yes, and then the way that he comes in there and realizes that this is, he says, you know, these people had come for a spectacle and instead and instead had been given brutality. Well, that's how things often went in war. And this whole idea of the Alethi having made this war into a game and that he and his father are going to change that starts here. I thought it was interesting in my head that the meal he has before the duel is chicken, which to us is fairly commonplace food. Right. But in Rashar would be the equivalent of saying like, have you had caviar? Right. Before your, before your big duel. That I is interesting. I thought that was sort of interesting. I also like too, at the end, uh, Navani comes in and congratulates him and she's like, that was really smart how you, you know, were hiding your true skill and blah, blah. And he was like, oh yeah, that's, that's exactly what I was that's doing. what I was trying to do. I didn't just get really pissed off. Also, at the end, he gives the shard blade that he won to Renarin. He does. So Renarin now has a full set of plate and a blade, even though he kind of grimaces when he takes the blade. So chapter 15 is called The Hand with the Tower. The snapter before it describes the work form and says about this form, found here is freedom from fear. Shalan continues her journey to the Shattered Plains. She gets closer to convincing Tvlakov that she has a fortune waiting for her at the war camps, or at least that she is a person of importance. Things take a disturbing turn when Bluth spots a group of deserters nearby. These men are dangerous, having forsworn their oaths to become scavengers in no man's land. The group hustles off in the middle of the night in an attempt to to avoid them. So this is where the real sort of plot point of Shallan's little arc happens, the beginning here. Right, At the end of this chapter, and it goes through, obviously, to the end uh, of what we've read, and it, I'm going to briefly jump ahead here, it sort of provides an interesting exploration of what Shallan's abilities are, and sort of what her, like, this personality that she has, where she's just going to She's going to say what she needs to say to get the end result, regardless of whether it's true or not, which reminds me a little bit of Quoth, you know, where it just sort of kind of gives us a hint of where that is coming from. So it's so it's interesting as a backdrop to allow us to see that. But I do feel like this whole thing with the deserters and the bandits and the two wagon caravans kind of coming together is a little contrived. Why so? It just seems artificial to me that this would happen and that these people would be so naive about the way they go about their day-to-day practices if they are slave traders who constantly traverse these planes and have to deal with this situation. Oh, like that he only has two guardsmen. Well, they're woefully unprepared 
and they make horrible strategic decisions. And then the idea that they would just sort of stumble upon this other group dealing with the same thing at the same time, is it, it just seemed a little contrived. But I'll throw that all out for what it sort of allows us to see and learn about Shallan. But I had to kind of pick that up on the second reading. Most of the time through the first reading of this whole arc of Shallan, I was just sort of looking at it like, what? Why are these people doing this? This is stupid. Why would they do this? It doesn't make sense. It's just the behavior for people in an area where that's a a real likelihood that you're going to stop and have like a, a cook fire every night when you know that you're in an area where your fire can be seen for miles and you, there's tons of bandits around. Nobody who lives and works and has to deal with that situation would realistically behave that way. So you're talking about Tavlakov. I'm talking, yeah, I'm talking about Tavlakov. I'm also talking about the deserters as well. Like, what is it that they're, I, I, maybe it's just because we haven't really gotten a full perspective on it, but what are these guys going to, do like they seem to make it very clear that they don't have an option of going anywhere else in society so they're sort of stuck here and i get that you're still going to rob wagon trains because what else have you got to do but what are you going to trade the silks like you know if, if you can't eat it it doesn't it provides zero value to you it's just sort of a weird thing you know and them sort of dodging campfires and being able to tell like i don't know well i would say about the deserters we know or at least i would suspect that they are newly deserted because gaz is with them yeah and until pretty recently we know where gaz was yeah also i mean if they're in wagons with chulls versus a, a bunch of like if if it took them a day and a half to catch up it's because they wanted to take a day and a half to catch up those guys could have caught up to them immediately and they took they made essentially no efforts to do anything other than run in one direction and hope they didn't catch them like nobody would nobody who actually lives in that scenario would would act that way i might Not if you actually lived in that environment. However, I do think there's a hint later on that maybe Tavlakov does not have the same level of experience that we might assume that he has. That's the way I gather it, that him going to the Shattered Plains to trade men is maybe not something he does all the time. Or even by choice. Right. So anyway, I've I've derailed the conversation enough. No, that's what this is about. It's getting your take on things and your criticisms. So was it enough that you couldn't enjoy this character arc? So, like I said, on the first read-through, I was sort of distracted by the improbability of it all. I had to kind of go back and read it again to sort of see what it was trying to show us about Shallan. And then I was okay with it. I guess for me, I am so much more interested in the development of Shallan's magic powers that that's where the focus is. And I think that's where it's meant to be. You know, uh, in Kaladin's flashbacks, in the last book, we had this exploration of 
the morality of killing. Can you kill to protect? Mm -hmm. And I think in Shallan's flashbacks, we have a similar exploration of the morality of lying. Is lying ever okay? Uh, how, How can lying actually be used to benefit people? And this combination that she uses of lies and truth about people to make them see the best in themselves, it's pretty cool. Yeah. It's just a, a, an interesting form of, of magic powers like that. I don't think I've ever seen anything like it in a fantasy book. I don't think I have either. Yeah. You know, and, yeah. and we've talked about this before. What I like the most about Brandon Sanders, about this, these books, is that how Brandon Sanderson's magic users, their development of their powers is directly tied to their character development, their development as like good people. And uh, I just don't, I don't think I've ever seen anything like that before. And I think it's so cool. It is interesting. Yeah. So in this chapter, we really just see the first hint of that. Shallan for the first time is able to use Stormlight to make herself seem something other than what she is. And she doesn't quite, she does it unconsciously. She doesn't quite know what she's doing. But at this point, she's still in a very precarious position with Tvlakov. She still hasn't convinced him that helping her is in his best interest. So first of all, she finds out that she can send Pattern to spy on people and that he can come back with an exact replica of their conversation so he can he's, imitate he's not, people's yeah. voices. He's not live. He's Memorex. Right. She reflects on the importance of perception and appearance. And then she goes on to then use her powers to, like I said, seem more powerful, seem more than she is. And she kind of is able to overall to lock of and get him to do what she wants. And it's a, it's a, it's a nice setup for where her arc is going to go. I think it was also fairly well set up because we have, prior to all of this happening, we have her wondering constantly about Yasna and how Yasna just assumes control everywhere she goes and how her appearance, not just her physical appearance, but her demeanor, her bearing, the way she carries herself, her attitude, all of that impacts how people perceive her and how they just sort of give authority over to her. So it's sort of well set up prior to us even learning that she has these powers. And I like at the end, so Bluth is talking about the um, the deserters to her. And he says about them, you know, you spend your whole life with a decision like that and you just wish that any honor was left to you, but you know you've already given it away. And we know that Shalon uses that later. So yeah. her transformation of the mercenaries or the deserters doesn't come out of nowhere. Like she's filed that bit about them that bit of information about them away and so again it's just a nice setup in this chapter for what's going to happen later yeah so chapter 16 is called sword master the snapter in this one describes nimble form and says that it craves precision and plenty kaladin and moash are guarding adolin and renarin as they train amaram's presence in the camp and his friendship with dalinar is eating kaladin up He's not crazy about Adolin either, but his, he's committed to keeping him alive. We meet the training master, Zahel, who begins training Renarin with his plate and blade. So in this chapter, Kaladin continues to be catty. 
Oh, yeah. Like, like if you put him in a room full of bright eyes, like, he's definitely going to show you his asshole. Absolutely. Just like a cat. He's not happy. He's not a happy camper, our Kaladin. No. Well, he keeps saying things that he doesn't need to say. It's not, it's like he can't shut up. He's getting the Shalon problem, you know, where he just says smart alecky things for no reason. Like he makes the uh, the heel licking comment that was completely unnecessary. Mm-hmm. You know, he could have simply said, when they had the conversation about, uh, you know, whose authority is under, and Adolin says, I don't like you, sir. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and Kaladin says, uh, you know, I'll obey any order you give me, assuming it's reasonable, but if you want someone to go fetch tea, you're going to have to find somebody else. You could leave it there and have perfectly made your point, but he has to take it to this extra level, and he does it multiple times where he just... He's making himself out to be a jackass. He's like, I know you are, but what am I? Yeah, I mean, it's who's got the bigger popped collar mm-hmm. in this contest, you know? It's every 80s movie where the star is like a teenage kid who's bright, but he's from like a middle class family, but he has to work at the country club and, the you know, and his girlfriend is you know being hit on by the the son of the president of the country club like it's every 80s movie like that this is the plot to caddyshack (laughs) chevy chase is going to come out he's going to take a drum solo so we start this chapter off with a conversation between kaladin and moash And Moash is the only one that's noticed Kaladin's reactions to Amaram anytime he sees him or hears him mentioned, you know. Um, And he asks Kaladin to promise that one day they're going to get revenge on the ones who hurt them. Yeah, that was a big thing I noted as well Mm -hmm. in this chapter. I think that's going to come back later. We also find out that there have been more mysterious warnings carved into Dalinar's quarters. Yeah, and Kaladin's like, is it possible he's doing it himself? Because I was there the last time, and right. I'm certain that nobody got in that room. Right. So we also have conversations with Syl. Right. And as I referenced back in chapter 13 or 14, I don't remember which one, about the comments about how Pattern says the spren from him, the spren right. from the other, the spren from Odium or whoever the, the big bad is that we don't know about. Spre- uh, Syl in here says that she is a god. She's just a tiny, 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 tiny little piece of a god. Mm-hmm. So it's starting to give me this juxtaposition of the spren are the ideas of God and the void bringers are just sort of the matching bad set of ideas from the evil god. The void bringers, then, if that's accurate, are not necessarily the Parshman or the Parshendi or the Chasm Fiends or the Thunder class necessarily. They're simply the spren that inhabit them and take them over. Which is interesting because Shallan, every time she sees Parshman, 
is like those evil <laughs> bastards carrying our laundry, <laughs> building our iPhones. Right. It's such an interesting development because you have what they all think is the bad guy, the, the Parshendi, who are actually not really the bad guys. They're just in, in a kind of jackass way trying to actually save the bad, prevent the, ba the bad guys from coming back. It's the classic. The whole plot could have been avoided if only we had cell phones. And also because... But they have all these parchment sitting around doing all these other things, this huge slave labor economy, and yet none of them are busy making iPhones. I don't get it. Seems self-inflicted is what I'm saying. <laughs> So what did you think of Zahel? I mean, so far, he was kind of what you would expect. See, I think the thing about a lot of Brandon Sanderson's characters is they are very oftentimes exactly like what you would expect them to be. They look and act, they are introduced to you in very archetypical ways. It's not until you spend hundreds of pages with them that you start to kind of learn more of the subtlety and the nuance of them. But your initial, your initial introduction to them makes them look like he looks like and acts like, and is introduced like every other fantasy sword master and every other fantasy book that ever exists. Mm -hmm. The only thing that's missing is he has all 10 fingers apparently. <laughs> and he's kind of dirty looking. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's part of the archetype, too. Right, yeah. He's yeah. scruffy. He's, I mean, he's standing in the corner in the shadows. I mean, literally just like Aragorn right out of the Prancing Pony. He could be 35 or 70 or older. His eyes are older. Yeah, then he, yeah. His eyes are older than he is. He's seen some shit, man. Listen, I was in the army. All right. I never went to war, but I was in the room when you gave birth four times. <laughs> I have seen some shit, man. It was pretty gross. It's like watching a python <laughs> swallow a pig. Abort mission. Stop, stop. Just in reverse. <laughs> You cannot put that out there. <laughs> it's not. It's not about you. I mean, you were the best looking python in the zoo. I'm just saying. But I think we just lost the last of my sisters that are listening to this podcast. <laughs> Sorry, Grace. She's out. <laughs> we'll just put a warning on it. So where were we even going? We were with talking that? about Zahel. Zahel, okay. okay. So I mean, I mean, I'm willing to go with it. That's sort of my take. Is like, mm -hmm. oh, okay, he's the swordmaster. Great, okay, okay. I mean, I did think it was interesting. I don't, I don't think it's in this chapter. I think it's the next one when he's like, he's like, yeah, I'm here to train you too, right? So we'll, I think that's the next chapter. So we'll get into that when that actually comes about. 
So the last thing I have that we didn't mention is Syl again talking about how she doesn't like anyone that has a shard blade. Yeah. And she says that they're abominations, but they weren't abominations when the Radiance had them. The Radiance changed and they became abominations. And she wants to tell him more, but it doesn't work that way. So where do shard blades go when they're not in people's hands? I can't help but think that's a part of it. That maybe in the olden days, back when I was your age, shot blades went into the armory, but now nobody knows where they go. I don't know. I don't know. I can't help but think that's somehow related that when the Radiants turned their backs and separated themselves from their spren, all of a sudden it created an opening for shard blades to no longer go to Shadesmar, but maybe they go someplace else now where the bad guys sit. I don't know. Maybe the shard blades are what keep all the Spren's lunches cool in the lunch break room. <laughs> and now that you assholes are taking them out all the time, I can't bring tuna fish to work anymore. <laughs> Think about somebody else, you asshole. We'll just think about it. <laughs> chapter 17 is called A Pattern. The snapter before the chapter describes dull form, saying that in order to find it, one must banish the cost. So Shalan and the slavers are still anxiously scurrying away from the deserters. To distract herself, she draws an idealized picture of Bluth that also somehow seems right. She begins drawing idealized pictures of herself and then practices using Stormlight to create illusions. She's delighted to discover that Stormlight is healing her wounds. Unfortunately, bad news follows the good news. As they approach a group that they hoped would be a large caravan, they realize that it is a large caravan. On fire. <laughs> this caravan is on fire. <laughs> but but literally. So we see her really ordering Tvlakov around like a pro here. Yeah. Yeah. Because they're so they're they're running away from these deserters. They can see their fire behind them. They see some other fires up ahead of them. They don't know who it is. And she's like, no, that's where we're going. And ever since her confrontation with Tvlakov, where she used Stormlight, he's now kind of doing what she says, but he's not happy about it. She also has a long conversation with Pattern um, about the Spren bond. So we find out that well, they're talking about she's wounded in her feet and uh, Pattern is is like very interested in how humans break and unbreak. And we find out that we cannot unbreak ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. We we cannot unbreak ourselves without help. So we find out that Spren are part of the surges or the forces that run the world. And we kind of already knew this, but Shalon kind of lays it out. Like we, we have a symbiotic relationship Yeah, and I get access to the surges. You get sentience, you know, and that she has access to the surge of illumination, which Pattern says is lies and truth. Yeah, I thought it was interesting just sort of how she describes it, because I think it was the most sort of concise or to me, it it made mm-hmm. the most sense. It was just an explanation that, you know, surge binding is manipulating the forces that, quote, run the world, gravity, light, etc. But with your 
aid because you have the ability to manipulate them that we don't. And then, like you said, but you're simply ideas without action, without thought, and without us, you don't get to be able to realize any of your ideas. Exactly. We also find out that, well, Pattern is a scholar. So she realizes that he's there because he's he's fascinated by humans. And he tells her that he's excited because he's going to learn so much before she kills him. Yeah, that was I had to read that a couple times. I was like, what? Who Who's talking to who here? Like, bef- you know, to realize what's sort of going on. And but yeah, that was kind of a tender moment there. Right. And uh, and she says, of course, what? I'm not going to kill you. And he says, well, the knights killed their spren when they broke their oaths. So that's kind of we, we knew that something bad had happened, that the the knights harmed the spren somehow but this has put it out there that the knights killed the sprint when they broke their oaths well doesn't i believe maybe i misread it but i believe that he indicates that he was one of the spren not they didn't all die but he was an unbonded spren he said those of us that were unbonded were able to escape ah i see okay Uh, we also find out that shallan at some point has spoken oaths She's spoken the first ideal. Whether she realizes it or not. She she kind of, it's one of those things that she vaguely remembers. Listen, I said a lot of shit when I was 23 (laughs) and I was at parties and like just things. You could have spoken the first ideal. I mean, yeah. I mean, things come out of your mouth, you know, it's 1.50 (laughs) a.m. You make commitments. I don't think we should be holding ourselves to this. Chad used to do this shtick in college that was my favorite called short-term memory guy. Oh, God. Do you remember that? No, I don't. I mean, vaguely. You would just pretend to be short-term memory guy. And and you would just walk around and pretend like you couldn't remember anything. Had terrible short-term memory. I don't remember that at all. You'd be like, hi, I'm short-term memory guy. And we'd all be like, yeah. <laughs> you had to be very drunk to find it funny, probably. <laughs> apparently, apparently. But seriously, Shalon, why can't the Parshman do it? She's like, go get me some of that knobweed. And he's like, dude, seriously, can't. Like, I got to feed the Chelsea. We're being chased here. Like, can't you have one of the Parshman do it? And she's like, no, I want you to do it. I'm a bright eyed lady. Do what I say. You know, and I'm like, really? I get she's trying to maintain appearances, but that's when they notice a fire behind them because the bandits have stopped to cook their midday meal. That's asinine. Unless those bandits deliberately wanted to trail behind them for two days and let them know that they were there and give them an opportunity to escape... There's no way in hell they would ever do that. But that's a minor nitpick. What really disturbs me about this chapter is Pattern's obsession with poop. Now, that's the best part of the chapter. (laughs) It's like, I don't understand. You eat things and then you go and drop things, but you're all like shameful about it and won't let me see. Okay, so the smoke that they see, FYI, is not from the deserters behind them. 
Well, they see it from behind the man in front of them. Because Tavlakov says specifically. Right. And he says at this. So at this point, it seems like the deserters aren't chasing them. Because Tavlakov says they don't care about us seeing our fire. That's a good sign. They probably know that we're barely worth chasing. So they're not really after us until they realize that a high storm is on its way. And that's when they realize that the the bandits are going to hunt them down in order to get their wagons to be able to get out of the high storm. For shelter, yeah. But again, do these people have any idea how long it takes to build a fire that you can use to cook a meal? And then, like, that's just not how that happens. Like, if you eat anything, you eat on the move. Like, you're not stopping and building a fire. Again, it's a nitpick. I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but but Brandon Sanderson has clearly never been chased across arid ground by bandits. Is all I'm saying. Obviously, I obviously. Mean, he, you know, he can write a he can write a big book, but rings hollow to those of us who lived in a creme desert. Well, I just have one more thing I I wanted to finish saying about the idea of Shalon's development as a radiant and, and being tied to her personal growth. And that was that um, pattern says to her, you live lies and it gives you strength, but without speaking truths, you will not be able to grow. That's so I my think, last note as well. Yeah. So that's just an important um, thing. We're going to need to be able to keep remembering. I think it's going to be how this book ends. That's a, Sneak peek at one of my predictions. All right. So chapter 18 is called Bruises. The Snapter describes the scholar form of the Parshendi and tells us to beware its ambitions innate. So there's more training with Zahel the Ardent, only this time he wants to train Kaladin as well. Kaladin pops a tood and ends up trying to smack (laughs) Adolin down very unsuccessfully. His stormlight deserts him because he isn't fighting to protect anyone, and he ends up with a few new bruises, both physical and emotional. Yeah, this is where I had sort of my comments about Zahel, and where, as you stated, he turns to Kaladin and says, oh yeah, I'll be training you as well. And he makes a very compelling argument about, hey, you can talk all day long about how, you know, you want to be the best bodyguard and protect uh, the Colleen family, but they're not going to come after you with spears. They didn't come after Gavilar with spears. You need to be prepared and equipped to be able to fight shard bearers. So he makes a really compelling argument. It also sort of reminds me of, it. it sort of smacks of the hero's tale, or the hero's journey Mm -hmm. and sort of meeting the mentor or meeting the white spirit sort Mm -hmm. of phase of that journey. So it'll be interesting to see where it goes from here. But the real takeaway from this chapter is Kaladin is an asshole. He really makes an ass of himself. He really does. The star of this chapter is Renarin. Uh, False. The star of this chapter is the Lopin. Hmm. 
Lopin but Renarin's in. pretty awesome too. Yeah. I love the backdrop of like while all this is going on and Kaladin's having this angsty like fight, Renarin is just climbing to the top of the building and just falling on his face. It's just like he's playing sandpit like, high dive. There's like all this like intense like angst going on, and in the background, Renarin's just like, Rah! yeah, <laughs> I'm okay. You know, and well, and Kaladin, see, again, this is where Kaladin's, like, even the fighting thing, to me, is less of an asshole move than him walking up to Zahel and looking at Renarn and being like, I know, right? What's up with these bright-eyed assholes? (laughs) And Zahel's like, no, I think I like this guy. He'll do anything I ask him. He doesn't have a chip on his shoulder, unlike some dark-eyed, you know, spearmen I know. You know, and Renarin's like, I'll do whatever you want. I'll kick a kid. <laughs> right. Yeah, Renarin's pretty awesome. I did think it was interesting. He's like, he's like, most of the time when I deal with these people, it's like a 10-year-old, you know, mm-hmm. bright-eyed child. And they're, you know, just already so full of fucking privilege, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm just like, but it would have been a lot funnier if Renarin had been with a bunch of other 10-year-old bright-eyed spoiled kids. That would have been a lot funnier. I would have enjoyed that. Well, my favorite Don't part... Don't make me kick you, Cody. Well, you know when I was 16, I, I decided... Oh, yes. I had to... Um, I-, I had been a dancer, but I had to stop because of-, of physical stuff going on. I decided I was going to learn karate instead. So I joined like rec karate. I had to fight a bunch of 10-year-old boys. Yes, and you I did. couldn't I couldn't do it. <laughs> I could not I could not do it. I could do the katas and everything, that's fine. And then they'd be like, okay, spar. And I would just stand there and be like, uh, and then they come up and just kick me in the boob every time. Every time. Every time. <laughs> like two, two punching bags right here. Like. <laughs> and then they laugh. And they would laugh at you? Now, that part I don't think I ever heard. I'm pretty sure one or two of them laughed. (laughs) She's like, that's my boob, man. Dude, chill. (laughs) And that's the story of how I almost got a yellow belt one time. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm glad the world knows now. So so this chapter opens, though, with Kaladin talking to the Lopin. And the Lopin is saying... Hey, you know, the other guys, they're doing pretty well. They're starting to like, like have a positive outlook on life. And, and Kaladin's like, well, you know, you always had a positive outlook from the first day I met you. And the Lopin says, well, life was pretty good then, you know? (laughs) (laughs) And Kaladin's like, you were consigned to run the bridge cruise until you died a horrible death. He's like, well... Yeah, you win some, you lose some, you're up, you're down, it all comes back around. Here, you want a bite of my lunch? <laughs> Chowda. Chowda. So um, I also thought it was interesting, Zahel saying um, at some point he, he uses a weird idiom. Oh, yeah. And he says Eats like... the wrong flower. Yeah, you make me eat the wrong flower. And then he's like, you people don't have proper idioms for anything. Oh, my goodness. I I know that things are tough for Kaladin right now. It's confusing. 
you're at war, you're filled with stormlight, it's all going well, you save the prince, then the stormlight fails you when you're trying to attack the prince. <laughs> Go figure. Go figure, you know, I mean, I just want to let him know, like, hey, man, it, it's okay, things get things get better, man, things get better, you know. Like, you could be like us, and instead of having to, you know, fight all these real war wars, you could fight wars with concepts like terrorism or drugs or cupcakes. <laughs> that's a war with cupcakes. That's, yeah. So apparently that's who we're at war with now. Cupcakes? Cupcakes. Whew. Those cupcake wars are what... brutal. Oh, cupcake. Well, okay, I gotcha. I'm, I'm going with you now. It's a long way to go for a baking joke. I was. So chapter 19 is called Safe Things. It's a flashback to five and a half years ago. It is five months after Shallan's mother has died. She hasn't spoken a word since. Her mind freezes when she thinks about her mother at all. Her brother Hilarin gives her some drawing supplies and tells her he's going to be going away for a while. Before he leaves, he gets into a confrontation with their father and reveals that he is a shard bearer. He tells Shallan that he has important work to do and asks her to keep drawing for him. And this is where I finally figured out what all the plant shit was about. Right? Isn't that cool? On the second read through. Like, I didn't even get it the first time. I mean, I, I read right. it, you know, but it was the second time through. I was like, oh, this is why she's so freaking obsessed with plants all right? the time. Because anytime shit gets hard, she's like, she's like, let me see what this grass is doing. Right. <laughs> So it opens with Shallan. She's in deep shock after her mother's death. Like I said, she hasn't spoken in five months. And she's having these dissociative episodes that at this point in her life seem to happen every couple of minutes. Yeah. You know, versus now where it's it's much more sporadic. But when Hilarion gives her these drawing supplies and she starts to draw, it's a picture of bodies on the floor. And Hilarion snatches the paper from her. And tells her, why don't you draw some plants instead? Come on, dude. Draw some sky eels. He draw says, no, no. <laughs> draw Listen, some safe things. I want you to draw a wicked sky eel right here on my <laughs> bicep. <laughs> Just right here on my bicep. And then I want like a ribbon underneath of it that says, mom. <laughs> so... Hilarion and Shallan's father comes into the room and he's all like, Hilarion, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, got his, like a stained wife beater on. And he's like, you know. <laughs> well, it was interesting because when I read back through the second time, he doesn't really like Hilarion's the one who instigates it. Right. Well, he's comes in yelling. He does. You're not running off again. Like, what are you doing? You're not, but again, He's coming to his son. Now, he's being a dick about it. Uh, I'll agree with that. But he's coming to his son and he's saying, don't leave. That's what he's saying. He's saying it in a shithead kind of way, but that's what he's saying. And Hilarion takes it fucking too far. Like, And then he pulls out a shard blade and I'm like, all the Parshendi and the Shattered Plains can only scrounge up one lousy ass shard blade. But here in the fucking Devar family, the place is goddamn lousy with shard blades. Right. Every time you're walking around, you got to, you know, pick up your feet unless you don't cut your foot off accidentally with a goddamn shard blade. <laughs> shard blades everywhere. <laughs> lousy with them. So, yeah, the father comes in and Hilarion accuses their father of murder. 
you know, the father's like basically like, are you taking the car again? And Hilarion's like, I don't know. Are you a murderer? <laughs> Did you kill her mom? <laughs> and then it goes downhill from there. Whoa, dude. <laughs> and Hilarion looks like he's about to. Now, this is at this point, nobody knew Hilarion was a shard bearer. So it's a new thing. Their father starts to come after him and he, he whips out this shard blade and Shallan speaks up to save their father. Yeah. It's the first word she's spoken in, in five months. And um, she says, no, please don't. Please don't kill him. So Hilarion does back off. It's what's interesting is that her, their father, you know, says well, he's like a shard blade. Like and he he looks up upward upstairs and then says, but no, this one is different. So obviously thinking it's Shallan shard blade. One of 80,000 right. shard blades in this goddamn Apparently. Place. Like nobody gets a shard blade. Shard blades from the very beginning are super ultra rare, but we see them show up in every fucking chapter of this goddamn series. Well... They're the center. They're going to be where the center of power is, which is where the story is. I, I mean, the story is not about the 10,000 yokels that don't have a shard blade because it just wouldn't be as interesting. I'm sorry. Well, I mean, you know. It's like, here's a book about magic swords, but it's about all the people that don't have magic swords <laughs> just to make Chad happy. You and your goddamn logic. <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> Listen, I'm just trying to go a really long way for a really lousy joke. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> Stop apologizing. It was the joke. I'm always fucking up bad. your jokes. <laughs> so apparently this sword was given to him by his new friends. Mm, I think they might have been some sort of secret organization. Maybe. Starts with G. Ends with a bunch of squiggly lines in a pattern I can't uh, interpret. Rhymes with schmoshbloods. <laughs> the gushmoshbloods. <laughs> with the gushmoshblood family. Piano movers. <laughs> gushmoshblood piano movers. <laughs> we walk around with high pants, striped shirts. <laughs> Talk like it's 1943. So chapter 20 is called The Coldness of Clarity. The Snapter describes the Parshendi's art form. The last line says, come the spren to foundation's fates. I don't know what that means. That one was confusing. Hmm. But I think it's interesting that we're describing art form. The fates of the form. foundation? Hmm. The I, fate of the firmament itself. I, I do think it's interesting that we're describing art form, you know, in this chapter where Shalon really comes into her. Yeah, good point. Her power. Yeah. Anyway, in this chapter, Shallan's group reaches the caravan to find out that it is struggling, but with many survivors. They realize that they are between two groups of bandits. As one group attacks, Shallan knows what she has to do. She approaches the second group and convinces them to protect her people and the caravan using her new light weaving powers. And it is totally badass. Because it is. It was, I think it was badass. It was definitely not how I expected it to go me too and i just i thought it was badass yeah i enjoyed it i enjoyed it more the second time i read it when i again understood sort of what it meant for 
Shalon. I think it would be easy to read this in a cynical way, and hello, it's me, uh, so I do that sometimes, but you also have to keep in mind that, like, Shalon sort of comes at it, like, she's walking into these into this group of hardened deserters, but she's looking like Galadriel, like... Mm-hmm. Like she's like has like an almost supernatural aura around her and says all the right things. You know, it seems also that she's unaware of the degree to which she's casting the illusion. I think in part she is. What I think is so interesting is this idea of this woman, this child who grew up in in an abusive home and having to be hypersensitive to the moods of the people around her yeah, and how that plays out in her care in her current character. And in now is, is a big part of how she's able to wield her powers. And I just think that's so cool. That is really cool. I also think it's really cool from the deserter side of it, because this is like, deserters gone wild right. they need the guiding hand i like this idea of the power of transformation and can people really change and the fact that shalon uses lies and illusions to convince people that they can be more than they are and i love my favorite line of this whole section um it's not a funny line but it's when she goes up and so the the leader of the deserters is this guy vatha and and she she so she rides up and she's like oh you know this prey that they've been chasing oh thank goodness you're here and they're like they're just there's for a second they're like what they're taken aback yeah, you so, couldn't you couldn't have you couldn't possibly conceive of a better way to to walk into that. Right. And so, yeah. and she says, oh, there's, there's b- bandits that are attacking my friends in the caravan. And, and they're still, they're, just, they're like, what? 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 <laughs> what? I mean, like, you have to save them. And Talk about disarming though. Right. And she just knows, again, this is a character who knows people, who knows, again, pro- from her childhood has known how to um, how to read people. And so she's taken what she knows about these men and she's able to paint them a picture of themselves as heroes. And when the, the leader, Vatha, is the last one to be convinced, you know, he's kind of like, oh, He's all right. never really convinced. He, he's, he's not yeah. really. And uh, and he, he finally says to her, we aren't what you think we are. And she says, no, you aren't what you think yourselves to be. Yeah. And it, and I love that Gaz is the first one to run for, to go for it. Yeah. Oh, and oh, the other good one was, he says, we are wanted men. And she says, yes, I came here wanting, wanting men. men. <laughs> like that could, that could have gone wrong. That one there. But <laughs> Well, you came here wanted men. You've got deserters <laughs> gone wild. <laughs> <laughs> But Pattern says to her, you transformed them. Um, you are the lies and the truth, and they transform. So that's the power of illumination that she has. It's pretty groovy. I think it's pretty groovy. So chapter 21 is called Ashes. The Snapdirt describes meditation form. 
saying it's a form of teaching and consolation when used by the gods, it became instead a form of lies and desolation. Shallan's deserters win the battle, killing twice as many men as they lose. Bluth dies and Shallan finds the sketch that she made of him on his body. She meets the caravan owner, Macob, and the head of his guard, a woman named Tin. They agree to join their caravan to hers and take her to the Shattered Plains. I mean, poor George Michael is dead. I know. It's really sad. Probably the I most... thought that was very touching that, you know, she pulls out that sketch and that yeah. was what he was looking at right before he this ran into the chap- battle. Yeah, this is, it, it starts with that very touching note and it ends with a very touching note. I thought this chapter overall was touching and it, it, it worked for me. Mm-hmm. You know, it came across well for me. But to Vlakov blames George Michael for consorting with the deserters. Yeah, Tavlakov is not having any more no. of Shalon's shit. No, he's, he's out. not. But he couldn't have done that. He was on shift at the frozen banana stand. <laughs> but Shalon Devar is breaker of chains. So not only does she save the day, not in, you know, joins the caravan and she's going to be escorted back in comfort, but when she and Tavlakov have their little blow up, She says, fuck you. These are my slaves now. Mm -hmm. That's right. Now, I did think it was weird that after rescuing them, the first thing she says to them is, you can leave if you want, but if you stay with me, I'll pay you. And you can pay off your slave debt. And I'm like, what? How about there's no slave debt? Like, Well, I'm not sure that it works that way. I think that she would have to pay it off. To who? You can't just go rant. Like, I can't just go grab people and be like, you owe me $20,000 or you're my slave because you, like, I don't get it. Like, that's what their society is like. I mean. Well, I think a lot of people who become slaves also sell them. They're either sold or they they get into debt. And so they become slaves. Oh. I don't know either, but I think what you're meant to take away is that Shalon is taking care of them. Yeah, I, I get that. I understand what she's trying to do. It just seems Shalon does not have like an army behind her. She's not going to subvert like a lethe traditions, but that was just sort of a like, yeah, she freed the slaves. What? There was a slave debt. They've still got student loans. Like, Well, here's the thing, like she's giving them a place like she could free them, but then they're just going to be wandering the Shattered Plains by themselves, like with no money and no food. Yeah, yeah. Like she's taking them under her protection. Yeah, I get get that. I get it. I get it's just I'm not really criticizing the writing or Shalon's actions here. I'm just criticizing the fucked up society that it's completely fucked up and yeah. what's even more fucked up at one point she says you know she's looking at the slaves and she says most slaves that she had known are not really that different from any dark eyes that hasn't yet purchased the right of travel yeah so like most of the people in this entire country are, are in the same boat yeah where they are not allowed to leave their town yeah you know and they're forced to work for their overlord like that's it so 
Yeah, it's pretty messed up. Yeah. You know what else is pretty messed up? Roshar in heaven. So she finds George Michael dead and she's like, yeah. fight, fight the on. Good, yeah. Fight on the good fight. You know, yeah, that's pretty, it is pretty messed like, up. That the, that's like their idea of like, what if you're Dalinar and like, you know, you're, you know, you fight on you, this war, you're tired and an assassin stabs you in the back and you wake up and they're like, old man, Colleen. Get out there and fight every day for the rest. You're like, I'm fucking tired, man. That didn't <laughs> didn't I do enough? For fuck's sake, now I got to fight for eternity? Yeah, it's messed up. It's pretty fucked up, man. Why would anyone get excited about that? Like, why is that exciting? That's not exciting. No, I agree. I did think that the end, the scene at the end, when the deserters realize that they've saved people and been heroes and they're holding hands with the children. I thought that was very touching. And I thought it was very smart of Shalon to want to keep, to want to travel with the caravan. So it would be a daily reminder to the deserters of the people they saved and the fact that they're part of society again. Oh, not only that, but if Shalon walked away with, like if the caravan abandoned her, Mm -hmm. she'd be fucked. Oh Yeah. I mean, that's not good. She is like the Nickelodeon version of Aaron Brockovich, though. Yeah. <laughs> I also have to wonder what is going to happen. Like, what is all this going to look like when she shows up at the Shattered Plains? Well, she's in considerably a better position now because she's not going to be showing up like penniless and barefoot. Now she's got going to have, I mean, she's hooked up with this caravan. They're going to like, keep her in comfort, give her yeah. some nice clothes. She's got some servants waiting. Or like she's going to show up. Well, I think know. she also has an opportunity to make people loyal to her. Mm-hmm. Rather than walking into the Alethi high court, a freaking pit of vipers mm-hmm. where she would just be used as a pawn and she'd get eaten alive. Right. So I think this, puts her in a better position to have people who are pot- potentially could be loyal to her. I, I just love this as someone who's really interested in psychology and this idea that you can think yourself out of personality ruts, you know, and that by changing your thought patterns, you can overcome obstacles that kind of thing. And you just really see that with this character. You know, she starts out this very person who assumes that she's a meek person, a a coward. She's not ever going to be able to be anything different. And by this point in her story, she's, you know, when she's, she's in this desperate situation caught between two groups of bandits. And she says to the caravan guard leader, I offer you my protection. I know. <laughs> you know? I love that moment. Yeah. And so she's just decided who she wants to be, and she's just acting as if. Yeah. And it's happening for her. Absolutely. The power of positive thinking. Every, it's, real, it's a real thing. Life coaches everywhere are cheering. I, it's a real thing. Just keep thinking positive thoughts. I'm thinking positive thoughts. This book is going to end well. In my predictions, I'm going to tell you how it ends, actually. Tell me. 
I will. When it's prediction time. Oh, But right. it is not prediction time what yet. What time is it? It's time to answer some questions from our listeners. Yes. Fun time. Oh, wow. Apparently, uh, we got a lot of them. I'm looking at them for the first time. Okay. Which is fun. Sorry, I'm clicking the view more comments button over and over. Sweet. And over again. Brian McClure says, having read the first volume of Saga, are you rooting for team technology or team magic? I can't root for those robot assholes. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I don't know. I'm Wreath, team Wreath. Yeah. If I had to pick. I mean, if you're making me pick. Right. I think I'm team Lion Cat. Hell yeah. That's the team I'm really on. So, Brian also says, would you rather live in a post-scarcity technological utopia, but as an ordinary middle-class citizen, or live a feudal society with medieval-level technology, but you're like a wizard king with ultimate magic power? That's a, that's a valid question. I, I, I need to think about that one. Because if I live in a post-scarcity technological utopia then I get to kind of have all the things that like the wizard king could just sort of magic up and command people to do for him. Like I can have all the grapes I want. I don't need people. I don't need to scare people into feeding them to me. See, I feel like as a wizard king with ultimate, ultimate magical power, I will eventually be toppled horribly yeah. by the deserving shepherd asshole or whatever <laughs> from the 80s movie yeah who grew up in the middle class yeah. and your son's gonna say something stupid at the polo match exactly. and he's gonna it bring never lasts yeah it never bring give me the middle class mediocrity i'm with you <laughs> totally with you there all right so Catherine stewart says what new books did santa bring you for being such good podcast hosts this year well i appreciate that you feel like we were good podcast hosts deserving of new books. <laughs> Thank you. And which will you read first? And how many has the Duchess already finished? Added Gordon Ross. <laughs> I think you've read three books since we've last podcasted. I have read four books. Oh my God. It's been two weeks. It's been 14 days. I think it's been, I, I it may, I'm not sure of the timeline. <laughs> But I've read four books recent, very recently. Wow. But none of them were Christmas presents, unless you count the presents that I buy myself. Because <laughs> <laughs> I bought them myself. No. Um, we can't give you presents. It'll go to your head. <laughs> I did get a book this year, though. My brother got me um, a book called The Forgotten Language. And it's about dream symbolism. I don't know. It's it's about psychology. It's about like symbolism and dreams and stuff. I didn't. I did not. And this is going to uh, answer Brian McClure's next question, which what which is what was your favorite Christmas gift this year? Actually, I actually have two for that, but I did not get a book. I got all the all books. The books. Because my my big Christmas present was a new Kindle because Liz got tired of hearing me bitch about my Nook. <laughs> Just shut up already. 
I can't believe it's taken us that long to just get you a Kindle. Because I felt yeah. like I was pot committed, man. I invested so much money in Kindle books or Nook books. So my goodness. So Brian McClure said, what's your favorite Christmas gift? So I would say that. But also, my mom got us matching the Aeolian in hoodies with our talent pipes. Yes, she did. On the front. You can see me open it if you, if you go to our Instagram page. Yeah, it was pretty awesome. It's pretty groovy. Eric Allgaier says, what is your least favorite Christmas song? I mean, if you're not going to answer Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You, then you're just patently wrong. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's categorically the worst you one. You know what it is for me? It's the 12 Days of Christmas. Really? Yes. What do you got against that song? Okay, I'll tell you what I got against that song. Nobody needs that many fucking birds. <laughs> and why Why are you going to send a bunch of dudes with drums and pipes and a bunch of random bitches carrying around buckets of milk to my house? What am I going to do? <laughs> I don't have 47 bedrooms, <laughs> but apparently I got several partridges and pear trees. Mm. I don't know what I'm going to do with all that. It's ridiculous. So in contrast to Eric's question, Brian says, what's your favorite Christmas song? Um, Oh, Holy Night is probably mine. Oh, Holy Night's pretty darn good. Holy crap, here comes Jesus. <laughs> and he doesn't look too happy. <laughs> is that, what is that? Is that That's Silver the, Bell? Uh, no, uh, Carol of the Bells. Carol yeah. of the Bells. <laughs> No, on a serious note, my favorite Christmas song is Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas as sung by Tori Amos. That's a pretty good which one. Which spun me into the two hour long fight online. With yes. People. Tori Amos. Uh, so Brian McClure also says, who are Hilarion's friends and what is his important work? So I think we have uh, identified that we believe it to be the Ghost of Humma Bloods uh, Piano Moving and Pasta uh, Corporation <laughs> based out of Schenectady. <laughs> uh, but I don't really, I can't say what his important work is other than letting everybody know that the Void Bringers are coming back, but not until they can find a way to make profit from it first. Right. Brian also asked any thoughts on Zahel, but I feel like I gave those, so I won't I won't come back to that. Susan asks, what are your thoughts about Renarin? Renarin might be my f might be my favorite of the Alethi characters, mostly because he just hasn't been on screen enough to put his foot in his mouth. Mm. Yeah, and and when he does interact with others, he seems pretty down to earth. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Ian James Crone says, what are your thoughts about Brandon Sanderson's inclusions of non-neurotypical characters and characters with mental illnesses? Is it respectful or exploitative? So we've talked a lot about this in this particular chapter, but we did not answer that specific question. Do you think it is respectful or exploitative? I, I mean, I find his his exploration respectful personally. Yeah, I think it ventures into the realm of, and I'm thinking as I talk, so bear with me if I stumble through this a little bit, but I think it's exploitative when authors use someone's mental illness as like, 
the whole answer to the mystery was that he was crazy the whole time. Like, you know, when they try to rewrite Fight Club in like a fantasy or horror type of mm-hmm. realm, then I think it's it's exploitative. But I, I wouldn't say I, I think I'm just sort of coming to the understanding that I think most like neurotypical is not even really a real thing in my mind. I think everybody has their, you know, everybody's kind of on some level of of a spectrum. I don't mean the autism spectrum, but nobody has adapted to the hardships of life perfectly. We all have tics. We all have maladaptive behaviors. We all have just regular adaptive behaviors, things that we've learned to deal with. It's not black and white, typical, non-typical. I think everybody has it to some degree or another. It just comes out in, in ways that for some people are more encouraged by society or or less ostracized. And for others, it's much more problematic. That's a totally amateur point of view. So I mean, that that's, it's a, that's a nice kind of inclusive perspective. I, I think when we talk about someone being neurotypical, and yes, nobody out there is perfectly 100% well adjusted, but there's a range of adjustment, shall we say, or, or that we would consider, you know, typical or acceptable, not acceptable Mm -hmm. as in things are okay or not okay, but it's just how maladaptive someone's behaviors are. Mm -hmm. So like if you're going through, um, you know, a process of, of diagnosing someone, one of the things you look at is like frequency and severity of symptoms and just how, how strongly it impacts their life. You know, so there's different criteria for each type of like maladaptive behavior. But so there's, I would say a range, when we say neurotypical, it means outside the range of what most people would consider able to live a, a, a normal kind of happy life. Yeah. You so, know what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. So we're saying the same thing. <laughs> no, we're pretty much saying the opposite thing. I don't think you're just I'm a, saying it's smarter. You're just smarter than I, I don't, am. No, I'm not. Expl- I don't feel like I'm not explaining it very well. <laughs> no, you're explaining it perfectly. I'm just being an asshole. Right. Is that non neurotypical or that is that is, just being an um, asshole? That is very typical, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> but you're a cute asshole. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. So I we'll keep you around. I appreciate that. Gordon Ross says, is the Shalon Adolin uh, Kaladin love triangle a little too predictable? If you were writing this, would you choose to try to subvert that trope? And if so, how? I think I'd have Shalon end up with Gaz <laughs> or Renarin. Ooh, love to see Renarin get the girl. That would actually be entertaining. That would be good. She comes. She gets betrothed to Adolin, but Adolin's a Class A douche. Stop talking about him like that. With his drippy sword. <laughs> and uh, Renarin is intellectual and somebody she could get along with. Mm-hmm. That's what I would do. Uh, Brian McClure says, favorite quote from this week's reading. Oh, mine was, uh, again, it was, no, you're not who you think you are. Yeah, that was good. 
that gave me like legit sort of shivers. Mine was, did I do anything wrong? Did I break any rules? Did I break any rules? There you go. That was pretty awesome. I love that scene. That's my favorite one. Yeah. Uh, Theo says, I feel like we didn't get a good uh, rumination over part one Snapter, so can you do a complete reread of them and then part two so far and see if there's stuff to chat about? Okay, I have it. The um, the Snapters from part one, which are all excerpts from Navani's journal, assuming that they are about the events of this book or leading up to this book. So if you read them all together, it sounds like this. To be perfectly frank, what has happened these last two months is upon my head. The death, destruction, loss, and pain are my burden. I should have seen it coming, and I should have stopped it. Our first clue was the Parshendi. Even weeks before they abandoned their pursuit of the Gemhearts, their pattern of fighting changed. They lingered on the plateaus after battles as if waiting for something. Soldiers reported being watched from afar by an unnerving number of Parshendi scouts. Then we noticed a new pattern of their penetrating close to the camps in the night and quickly retreating. I can only surmise that our enemies were even then preparing their stratagem to end this war. The next clue came on the walls. I did not ignore this sign, but neither did I grasp its full implications. The sign on the wall proposed a greater danger, even, than its deadline. To foresee the future is of the Voidbringers. We had never considered that there might be Parshendi spies hiding among our slaves. This is something else I should have seen. I was unprepared for the grief my loss brought, like an unexpected rain, breaking from a clear sky and crashing down upon me. Gavilar's death years ago was overwhelming, but this, this nearly crushed me. I seek not to use my grief as an excuse, but as an explanation. People act strangely soon after encountering an unexpected loss. Though Yasna had been away for some time, her loss was unexpected. I, like many, assumed her to be immortal. I wish to think that had I not been under sorrow's thumb, I would have seen earlier the approaching dangers. Yet in all honesty, I'm not certain anything could have been done. But understandably, we were focused on Sadius. His betrayal was still fresh, and I saw its signs each day as I passed empty barracks and grieving widows. We knew that Sadius would simply not rest upon his slaughters in pride. More was coming. Unfortunately, we fixated on Sadius's plotting so much that we did not take note of the changed pattern of our enemies, the murders of my husband, the true danger. I would like to know what wind brought about their sudden, inexplicable transformation." So very interesting, these Snapters leading all up to that first set of interludes where we learn so much about the Parshendi mm-hmm. and we learn what they were doing, trying to find Gavilar, um, trying to find Dalinar in order to sue for peace. Yeah. So it's interesting to read that from Navani's perspective and from the perspective of, of, of the Alethi, what they thought was going on. And then the snappers that we get in part two are all about those dastardly listeners and all about their forms and where they come from with hints. And the listener backstory is so tragic. It's And I love how, you know, we have spent like, you know, 1,200 pages before we learn anything about them, but 1200 pages of them just being painted as these 
this these villainous creatures who murdered the king for no discernible reason that nobody understands. They're just, you know, bloodthirsty monsters, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And then to like, after 1,200 pages of that, to learn this backstory. And it's so, um, it's so tragic, you know, that they were enslaved to these body snatching gods and they, you know, had to revert their form to and become slave like, you know, kind of this dull form in order to escape them. I don't know. I just like it. It's good storytelling. (laughs) In my opinion, it is good storytelling. So Ian James Crone asked on Twitter, if Quoth and Kaladin had a brooding contest, why would Locke Lamora win? Oh, definitely Locke Lamora would win. <laughs> good question, though. It's a good one, yeah. Yeah, I think probably. I mean, it depends yeah. on if you're you're judging on duration or intensity. Because Locke, you know, he'll go into like the most intense broods. Oh, yeah. For sure. But then he comes out of it. Yeah, correct. Whereas Kaladin quoth, don't let shit go. I think Kaladin especially. Yeah, agreed. Does not let shit go. Agreed, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And then he also asks, any theories on the different races that we see on Roshar, uh, the Herdazians, Thalans, Horn Eaters, et cetera, and their origins? Good question. I ain't got shit. I don't feel like I know enough to even go down that road. Right. Well, just keep reading. Uh, ask me this question in 20 more episodes. Mm-hmm. All right. Are you ready for predictions? Yeah. All right. I have a couple of predictions this week. The first is the actual Voidbringers are the evilly aligned Spren, those red lightning Spren. Mm-hmm. Meaning the Parshendi, the Chasm Fiends, the Thunderclass, etc., are just taking the rap for Odium's will. Mm-hmm. The second is, I think Kaladin eventually will come around and realize he's not going to be able to continue to hold all this hatred mm-hmm. in his heart. And he's going to have to let it go to be able to move forward and do what he needs to do. But when he does... It's going to cause a big conflict with Moash, who will not agree. Mm-hmm. And then the third is I'm going to tell you how this book ends. Ooh, do tell. It's going to end with Shalon looking into the dark places of her memory and thereby unlocking the full potential of her powers, just like Kaladin did mm. at the end of the last book, in order to defeat Sinister. <laughs> I love it. I think she's going to use those powers to actually un- unite the Alethi groups. That's what I think it's going to be. Mm-hmm. But that part I don't feel very confident about. The rest of it I feel supremely confident about. Cool. Quality predictions, bro. We'll see, man. We'll see. All right. Do you have anything else? I don't. All right. Fantastic. Well, 
You can find us on the dukeanddutchesspodcast.com, on Twitter at the D&D Podcast. You can find us on Instagram at the Duke and Duchess Podcast, also on Facebook, on our Facebook uh, page at uh, the Duke and Duchess, and our Facebook group page, which is facebook.com backslash groups backslash the D&D group. You know, I don't know. That could actually be a forward slash. I can never tell. What's up? What's down? What's forward? What's back? I don't know. Only thing I know about slashes is they played a wicked Les Paul in Guns N' Roses. Good night, everybody. Good night. <laughs> In a world where people have to restart podcasts, <laughs> one man attempts to keep his sanity <laughs> in a world gone small. I don't know why small. It's making less and less sense as we go on. This is like the Rorschach test of voices for me. That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> <laughs> What do you see in the painting, sir? <laughs> ba -da -ba -da -ba -ba.